Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Mike Leonard is here. LeonardTrialLawyers.com is where you can find out more about them. Mike, how are you doing today? Good, John. And I think it's important to note, first of all, yeah. that how much you spoil your guests. Oh, come wow. oh, really? Amazing. I mean, I was sitting in that green room, and I had mm-hmm. the opportunity to use a credit card to buy chips and a drink. A lot of stations would give you free food and stuff. <laughs> Not you guys. You just spoil the hell out of people who come in. And I think everybody should know about the opportunity you give us. I got you a pen, Mike. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the pen was free. I, I got you. Your coffee's free. I thought, I thought you might enjoy that. Water from the faucet's free. <laughs> come on, Mike. We don't charge you to use the bathroom. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, you know? but, no, you're good. Uh, that's uh, That's been Mike Leonard on WG. <laughs> <laughs> a very brief show this yeah, week. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, you got any listener questions for me, by the way? That's usually how you start out your show. Yeah, so your usually um, I'm just bombarded. Everyone wants to know about John Hanson. They don't want to mm-hmm. know about me or my law practice. They have questions about you. Right. And so uh, there's a couple questions that came up this week. Number okay. one. This always scares me, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Number one is, what kind of Christmas tree guy are you? Because I feel like there's two types, right? People who decorate a tree in a very, I'm, I'm, I don't want to offend you, John, a generic fashion where you have like, you know, you might have all silver balls or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then you have the hodgepodge tree that I'm part of where you have all these ornaments from all the different years. They don't match or anything like that. There's no pattern. I'm a hodgepodger. Good. Okay, to, good. Was, too much the chagrin to the person I'm married to. Great. Oh, because that's, that's good to hear. I, I was going to think you were one of those generic Decorators. Nope. I, okay. It's a hodgepodge. So here, here's what's on my tree. I've got my childhood ornaments, right? Yes, love Cra- those. Crayola crayon ornaments, trains, those sorts of things. And then there are a, a mix. Then there are some more classic glass ball ornaments. Yeah. of a set color scheme. So okay. it's kind of a mix of both. Honestly, it's a merger. You, you, but you have a set color scheme with the with the traditional balls. No, because they don't. Because then there's some that don't match it. So I'd say I'd more lean, more hodgepodge. Okay, good. Right. Good. I was I was a little worried coming yep. in. I thought you might say. You're a generic tree no. decorator. I'm, wow. really I'm really glad to hear that. Okay, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Secondly, we always have to start with pizza before yeah. we talk law. Mm-hmm. And I think that I have a place you haven't been to yet. Okay, where is it? To test your credibility All right. for Chicago area pizza. It's called Pizza Boy. Pizza Boy? Never it's heard of it. Edison Park. It's on Northwest Highway, just kind of on the cusp of Chicago and Park Ridge. The guy who owns it used was is the son of another pizza guy. Okay. Who had a place, who still has a place called Bertoli's Pizza. Oh, I know Bertoli's. You know Bertoli's. So this is Carlo Bertoli, the son of Frank Bertoli, who broke off on his own a couple years ago, has Pizza Boy, which is phenomenal. Oh, okay. Because not only does he make the traditional Chicago style, he makes Detroit style. Which I is love Detroit unbelievable. style. Unbelievable, yeah. The so, more pan-fried yeah, sort of thing, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's kind of a little thicker. And he's also doing New York New York style, too. So Yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm a tavern style guy is my favorite. Circle sure. Pizza. Sliced up, get the corners. Yeah, I like that too. I like that too. But I just wanted to test your credibility on on you know the pizza joints. Well, not credible. Because don't you have don't you have a TV show that addresses, addresses these kind of issues? Yeah, Chicago food to go. Just yeah, we're never really been putting to pizza you on the spot today, John. Boy, I feel great. Yeah, and 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 I didn't feed you, so yeah. boy, we're off to a terrible start. Yeah, a defense lawyer putting you on the defensive. <laughs> I don't like it. I feel like I'm in the hot seat here. It's much more fun the other way. Uh, busy couple weeks here for you. I know you got a big trial coming up in uh, the start of the new year, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, December, luckily, no nothing going to trial. I do have uh, hearings this week still, leading all the way up to Christmas, but um, have a trial January 9 in federal court, Medicare fraud case. So I'm lo- really looking forward to that, because I think we really have a, a good client with a 
with a good story to tell and someone who I think is not guilty. So hopefully that goes that way. All right. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up here before we got to take a break in the news in a couple minutes, uh, that one of the big stories this week was Robert Cremo uh, Jr., the father of the suspected Highland Park uh, parade shooter, appearing in bond court. Uh, he has been charged. Um, what is he being charged with and, and how does that sit with you? Well, he's charged with something quite unusual called reckless conduct. It's really never been applied to this circumstance before. And the reckless conduct involves him, what's called sponsoring, essentially, a minor for a FOID card, firearms identification card. So there's a way for someone who's under 21 years old to get that card. But when they do so, they have to have a parent essentially sponsor them. Okay. Um, but if you look at the language of the document that the parent signs. I was just going to say, what do they agree to? Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting. That's why it doesn't seem to fit the crime, so to speak, in this case. It really just asks questions about the parent. You know, for instance, have you been hospitalized in a mental institution? Have you been convicted of a felony? Have you done this? Are you, you know, have you ever been treated for drug and alcohol abuse? Questions about the parent, not questions to the parent about the kid, which I think is very interesting. So the document more wants to establish your credibility as a sponsor, not your uh, overlooking everything that you're, that who you are sponsoring and what they're doing. Yeah, which it's, it seems like this is a good opportunity for reform. It seems like if you want to address this issue of, of parents sponsoring kids and not doing it in circumstances where they possess knowledge that would indicate the kid shouldn't have a gun, um, you would you would think you'd ask the parent questions about their knowledge of the kid right. and what the kid's been up to, which doesn't appear on that document. It does say, though, on the document that the parent will be liable for the actions of the kid in using guns and ammunition, which I think is interesting. It's on the document written yeah, that way. But, but that would be, you know, a civil liability, if you ask me. It wouldn't be, it doesn't say you're, you, you're going to be criminally liable, nor could it really say that. But essentially, that's what they're charging for. They're saying, hey, look, Cremo knew these bad facts about his kid. They knew he was essentially a danger to the community. He was reckless in his actions in sponsoring the kid on, on the document by signing it, Okay. The problem legally, too, is going to be that that happened in, I think, 2019. Mm -hmm. And so you're three years later, and you're going to say that the parents signing the document in 2019 is essentially the proximate cause of what the kid did, which is which is tough because then, you know, legally, we need to draw the line, you know, yeah. between when the, when the sponsorship occurs and when the acts occur. As a parent and as a human, you got to wonder if the person did know these things, why he would ever sponsor a kid for a gun makes no sense to me. But legally, I don't think that the state's attorney's office who charged the case is on great legal footing. As a parent, I think 100% it was a mistake and make, makes no sense to me. Um, but legally, I think it's going to be a tough case. Right. I think it's hard. I think it makes it's a charge that makes a lot of people feel good because it's something I think that parents should take ownership of, of what their kids are doing and what they're up to. Uh, and especially when it comes to that they were the sponsor for the guns. But you're right. I think that that pre presents some interesting legal arguments there we got to take a quick break mike sure. leonard and we got to do good. the news as well leonard at triallawyers.com what number can people reach you at mike 312-380-6559 john give it to us one more time 312-380-6559 quick break then we'll have news next for the northwestern medicine newsroom and then a second hour of let's get legal on wgn all right hour two on wgn and uh, we continue this hour with the same guest we had in the last hour mike leonard 
from Leonard Trial Lawyers. And we're uh, going to chat a little bit about um, a carryover question from uh, the last time you were on about defending police officers in a moment. Uh, but I wanted to bring up this case. It's been in the news. The Oak Park woman, I think a lot of people know this case, of Heather Mack and uh, what happened in Bali. And she was charged with her mother's murder there. Right, Mike? Yeah, she was charged in a conspiracy charge in Bali, Indonesia, arising out of that. Yeah. Served seven years in prison. Came back to the United States. Now she's charged with conspiracy to murder against her mother. And um, uh, she's your client. And you had a hearing this week. It came in the news, right? Yeah. The reason why there was some attention given to last week, um, you know, the case has been pending for more than a year in federal court in Chicago, but there was a bond hearing this past week. So the issue was really, you know, two issues for the judge to look at. Was she a danger to the community if she would be released and was she a risk of flight? Those are really the two issues. Mm-hmm. And the court really found that she didn't pose a risk of flight. He didn't really base his decision to deny bond on that basis. He looked at the other issue, which was danger to the community. And, you know, you had a hearing where it was very emotional. You had some of the uh, victim mother's relatives testify mm-hmm. in court about why she shouldn't be released, etc. And in our argument to the court was that, you know, a danger to the community means someone who, if they're released you know, poses a threat to somebody to cause them harm. And what the government was relying upon the U.S. Attorney's Office was that was her relationship with her mother, uh, but didn't present any evidence that she'd ever had any altercations or physical violence against anyone else in the world. So our position was there's no, there's really no basis to say she's a danger to the community. The judge disagreed. And so she remains in custody, you know, pending the trial and the trial set for July of 2023. So I find it interesting that you're charged in another country, found guilty, you serve your term, you come back. How is the U S government able to charge her with something? Is that typical? Um, is it because her mom was an American citizen? How, what is the charge? How does that work getting charged in a different place? So it's pretty atypical. Typically, a defendant who commits a, a crime on foreign soil is usually you know, adjudicated, prosecuted through their system. If they get a sentence, obviously, they serve it there generally. In this case, she got a 10-year sentence, served seven, got released uh, a little bit early off the 10 be- because of good behavior while in prison. Um, the theory of the government here to charge her federally in Chicago is that it's a conspiracy charge and the government alleges that some of the acts in furtherance of the conspiracy were committed on u.s soil so that's how it gets into federal court generally in federal court in chicago okay and uh, the the the, um the the indictment was under seal right so she didn't know that this was waiting for her when she came back to the united states well yes and no so it was an indictment that was under seal from i think 2017 so she's serving her time in the prison in bali indonesia at the time she's indicted and it remained under seal. Before she left there, though, uh, my understanding from what's been reported is that some of the officials there told her about the imminent charges when she came back. So when she landed here, then they uh, arrest her because they had that, you know, under seal indictment waiting for her, so to speak. These high profile cases, I mean, they're big. Obviously, you're, you're, She's your client. That's got to be interesting. At the same time, it's 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 a lot of spotlight on you, Mike. Yeah, it's a challenge, of course. And you know, and sometimes the cases aren't popular, right? Right. And uh, I guess some, that's what I was getting yeah, at. Sometimes they're a challenge, but yeah, that's that's part of the, that's part of the job. Yeah, for sure. Well, that'll be interesting. So the trial, you don't know when that's going to happen yet, or there is a date set. I think okay. I believe it's uh, July of 2023 is is our current trial date. Okay. Well, we'll uh, keep our eyes on that one, of course. Now, all right, let's go back. A couple weeks ago when you were last on, we were going through interrogations and people, why would you ever plead guilt? Why would you ever um, admit you had done something when you hadn't? 
we talked about police misconduct cases um, or what rules police are allowed to follow that can sometimes get these things. And someone kind of called in. We were at the end of the show and wondered, had you ever defended police officers? And I think the caller was kind of getting to the fact that maybe that caller felt you had been really tough on police officers. Well, haven't you ever defended a police officer, too? And you answered quickly because you had to go. You wanted to expand on that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I've actually had a, a couple interesting and memorable cases where i've represented chicago police officers you know the one that really stands out was a civil case and as we talked about on that show oftentimes people will sue police officers for violations of civil rights you know the theory may be that they shouldn't have been arrested in the first instance that manufactured evidence was manufactured that a, a co- uh, confession was coerced that they were detained wrongfully or unconstitutionally so oftentimes it's just a Obviously, a private citizen who's been arrested, who's suing the CPD officers. In this case, what made it unusual was the person suing was a fire Chicago Fire Department battalion chief. Mm. He was suing the officers for false arrest. Ah. And it all occurred in the line of duty, which made it very interesting. So the, the fire department official, who's a plaintiff in the case, sued four Chicago Police Department officers, a couple um, you know, patrol officers, a sergeant, and a commander. And what had happened was the officers were investigating. It was either an incident or a fire. The battalion chief was there. Uh, according to their basis, you know, version of the facts, he was interfering with their duties, wouldn't leave, wouldn't obey their commands. The police officer. You no, know, the, the fire department oh, the official. Fire yeah, yeah. Department. So I the see. fire department official is there while the police are doing their job, while I the gotcha. CPD officers are doing their job. So uh, what happens is from their standpoint, He's disobeying their commands. He's not doing what they're saying. He's impeding their investigation. They make the unusual step, as, it, as of course you probably know, with Chicago police officers and Chicago fire department officers. They don't often get, they don't often arrest fire department officials no. while they're out do, doing their job. From a family of firefighters, I get how this yeah, works. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a, it was a big deal. So they arrested him. He's in custody literally for twenty to thirty minutes. Okay, mm-hmm. he goes to the station in custody. Uh, it's the, basically like, hey, cool your jets. Yeah. You know, so some, some people would arrest him, some wouldn't have, right? And so he's he's at the station. He's under arrest. He's in custody. He's there for literally 20 to 30 minutes. The commander says, release him. He gets released. He fu- then files this civil rights lawsuit against the four officers, the two that arrested him, the sergeant and the commander, saying, false arrest, false imprisonment, and I've suffered substantial emotional distress as a result of this action, Right. So I was defending the four police officers, and it went to it actually went to trial in Chicago in federal court. Uh, highly unusual, you know. Yeah. Have the fire department against the police department, and uh, what what made it memorable? I think a couple things is num- number one, that's so unusual; it mm-hmm. almost never happens. And what what I thought was, from the standpoint of representing the officers, I thought it was a somewhat absurd claim that he was entitled to millions of dollars. Because this brief encounter where he was in custody for 20, 30 minutes left him, you know, with, with allegedly this, this emotional distress, right? We should say that it's, it is probably stressful to get arrested. Oh, even when you're there's working. No, there's so, no, John, there's no doubt I'm just that trying is. to paint yeah, that. Yeah. You, I know it's simple to think, oh, come on, 20, 30 minutes. But that moment can be, especially if they feel like they were sought out specifically for a specific reason. Oh, sure. And and, and remember, I'm, I'm representing defendants in the case. So and I'm trying to so, just, you uh, know, provide the counterpoint. So, so, so it goes to trial. And um, what what really I think two things were, were probably key is, number one, you know, I, I did my cross-examination from him, a part of it laying down on the first bench, the first pew, 
and I was trying to reenact what he had said happened during his deposition testimony. He had said that he he basically, the way he described it made it sound somewhat leisurely. He basically took his jacket off. The placed, firefighter. Yeah, placed it be in his head and was just kind of in a relaxed position for those 15 minutes. So you reenacted that. Yeah, so I reenacted on cross-examination. And what I kept saying throughout is, is this, is was it at this point, that you suffered the severe emotional distress was at this point, was at this point. And you're and just I, laying there doing yeah, this. Yeah, I, I was laying there. And I think Were the there jury, objections being raised? Surprisingly not. I'd be yeah, like, this, yeah. oh, come on, Mike yeah. Leonard's being a bit of a, I don't know what the objection is. Yeah, he's a ham. He's a uh, ham. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's a drama queen. Objection, Judge. Yes. You know, it was surprising there really wasn't an objection to me laying down on the pew or well, conducting the cross-examination. Yeah. So he let me do it. But then I think what also was a clincher for the jury in ruling in favor of the officers and against the plaintiff fire department official was that he really didn't have, who um, wasn't able to produce really any evidence to support the claim of the severe emotional distress. He, right. didn't, he didn't have an expert witness. And what was interesting is he really relied upon his wife to provide the testimony. And this is a true story, John. What I'm about to tell you is when we were, when I was questioning on cross examination about, you know, what what's the difference? What's the change? What happened? Yeah, different with I, him. What's different with him? And one of the key things that she said, which you know, you, I, I hope you agree with me, sounds not so good, is that well, he used to buy really nice wine, and now he's coming home with stuff like two buck chuck, <laughs> and I almost, honestly, almost laughed out loud. I thought it was really weak evidence of emotional distress That's and right. the jury agreed in finding in favor of the officer because he buys cheaper wine yeah yeah so I, I didn't think that was a strong damages case for them that's amazing. That's a really interesting case. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it's, it's fun when something like that goes to trial. I can't under and those can believe you just laid down there to I reenact did. it. Yeah, and, and somewhat surprisingly, they're they're really the judge didn't have a problem with it. And you know, it's it's been done before. People yeah. have done cross examinations, you know, in all different ways. To oftentimes just to you're just illustrating depict, a point, yeah, yes. making a point to the jury, de- depicting. Sometimes you know someone will do it where where they're laying down to show that the person who's testifying could not have possibly had the observation, the viewpoint that they claim they did, something like that. You know? Mike Leonard will jump up, jump up and down for you or lay down for you. Whatever it Whatever takes, Whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the connotation of lay down for you, John. But you know but, what I'm saying. I mean, dramatically <laughs> I <do>. so. <laughs> who should be calling you, uh, Mike? Well, typically I represent individuals who are uh, charged with federal criminal violations or being investigated for them or also serious uh, state felonies. And on the civil side, as we've talked about, John, we often represent individuals who are suing companies or entities for whistleblowing or employment discrimination, those types of things. 312-380-6559. That's it, John. 312-380-6559. LeonardTrialLawyers.com. L-E-O-N-A-R-D, TrialLawyers.com. And we'll chat with you on Christmas Eve. You're going to join us. John, it sounds fun. I guess we're going to try the Grinch, right? Gonna, or, de- or defend the Grinch. You're going to have to defend the Grinch and tell us a little bit about what he could be charged with okay. and how you defend I, him. I've been talking to pretrial services about his background so I can come in prepared. <laughs> That'll be on Christmas Eve, uh, 10 in the morning. That's their next show.